course I'm not kidding. You mean to tell me you have women and anti-aircraft batteries? Hundreds of them. Are there any jobs in Britain women don't do? Why, in some of the steel mills up north, women are loading pig iron and shoveling tote. They also mix cement and they do welding in shipyards. I suppose they announce your radio programs, too. Announce? They not only announce, they engineer programs here. Is that okay, engineer? Okay, good test. We're getting the feedback okay. Quality merit three plus. Go ahead. Columbia Broadcasting System presents An American in England, the fourth of a series of six programs written and directed by Norman Corwin, produced by Edward R. Murrow, and broadcast from somewhere in the British Isles. Joseph Julian narrates, and the original musical score is by Benjamin Britton. Tonight, Women of Britain. of a West End hotel and look down toward the crowded ballroom. It's very lively. Dancing is on full tilt. There's a dazzle of beautiful women in evening gowns and officers in the uniforms of half a dozen allies. It's all so gay you'd hardly think that there's a shooting war 80 miles away in the channel tonight. You move up from the ballroom toward the main entrance. The lighting is dim conserving electricity to save fuel. Suddenly, out of the haze, a magnificent number in a fur wrap swirls past you, leaving eddies of perfume in her wake. You take a deep breath. Good evening, sir. Shall I call a taxi? No, thanks. Just going for a walk. Very good, sir. That was the doorman. You go past him, through the revolving door, and step out into the night. Not so black as it was last week. Moon's just coming up. You can see the Great Dipper behind the chimney pots of Maiden Lane. For a moment, you stand in the entrance, studying the sky. Ronnie, wait for John. Is is that you, Ronnie? I'm afraid not, ma'am. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you were someone else. It's so dark here. That's quite all right. Another good looker. Through these portals, past the most beautiful girls in London, apparently. Oh, well. You shove off into the moonlit night of the Strand and Fleet Street and walk east at a slow, philosophic pace. You walk down to a part of the city called, of all things, the city. Staggering desolation here. Acre after acre of bomb ruins. Like the pictures of frontline towns in the last war. In the hush of the blackout, amid the moonlit ruins, you find yourself thinking about those glittering and exotic women you just saw in the fancy hotel. And you wonder, feeling a little lonely perhaps, about women in general, about the women of Britain in particular. You wonder what the war has done to them. Not much to judge by those you've just seen. But then you remember what a young RAF pilot told you the day you arrived. Don't judge us by the lobbies of a few hotels in London. 
see us as we are. That stops you in your tracks. Of course, see them as they are. Judging anything about England from a big hotel lobby is like judging the United States from a movie. That ought to be plain enough to anybody. And yet you find yourself all tied up with romantic notions. A line keeps running through your head. She walks in beauty like the night. She walks in beauty like the night. She walks in beauty... Wait a minute. What kind of sentimental slosh is that? The woman of Britain walks in battle dress and does fire guard duty in the night. Exotic women. You walk a little more briskly. Tomorrow you'll do some serious looking around. There must be a good story in the women of Britain. You'll find out. Yes, sir. So you take a bus back to the hotel. The conductor is a pint-sized little Scotch girl wearing a gray smock. There's, please. We have to. Strand. Happens, please. Thank you. Uh, tell me. Are there many women conductors on buses? 7,000 in London alone. 7,000? Yes, sir. Ludgate Circus. She goes off about her work, climbing to the top deck for fares. Somewhere tonight, in Australia, Madagascar, Malta maybe, there's a British soldier who used to punch tickets on this bus. Releasing manpower, they call it. You ride along... Looking idly at the advertising signs inside the bus. You hardly read them in the dim light. One is a jingle advising people how to hail a bus in the blackout. Face the driver, raise your hand. You'll find that he will understand. But some wag is written in pencil underneath. I know he'll understand, but cuss. The point is, will he stop the bus? Well, you're at the strand. That's your stop. You get out, cross the street... Swish through the revolving doors and are back in your hotel again. And on your way through the lobby, who do you suppose passes you? Helen of Troy. Mm. And then a blonde looking like Lana Turner on the arm of a naval officer. Well, say like here. You go up to your room, kick off your shoes. Pluck yourself down in a chair, light a cigarette, and you pick up the morning paper, which you haven't read yet. The front page is covered with notices. You read some of them. Warren, to my dearly beloved boy, Donald H. Warren, fighter pilot RAF. On this, your 21st birthday. Reported killed in action, October the 13th, 1941. Sadly missed. Mother. Cranston. Believed a prisoner of war. Now known killed in action in Malaya. On January 11, 1942. Captain J.L.W. Cranston. Most dearly loved husband of Josephine and darling daddy of Ellen and Hope of Hatfield House, New Malden, Surrey. The widowed and bereaved, 
left behind to mourn. That's the way it's been with women since war immemorial, hasn't it? Until this war, something new has been added to this one. They don't stay at home and mourn anymore. Every home in Britain is a front line. Mother Warren's working in a canteen somewhere. Mrs. Cranston's making shells in a night shift. It's different this time. 7,000 bus conductors, women loading pig iron and steel mills, mixed ack-ack batteries. Yes, sir, it's different this time. Well, tomorrow you'll do some serious looking around. There must be a good story in the women of Britain. You go to bed. by the papers that while you were enjoying your blackout walk last night, the RAF plastered another Nazi city. American Marines attacked in the Pacific. The Chinese recaptured a port. The Red Army smashed six attacks before Stalingrad. Also tucked away at the bottom of page two, three girls on fire duty were killed in a raid on a small village in East Anglia. With news like that, Seems a small matter to have run out of clean shirts. But still, it annoys you when you ring for the maid. Uh, did you ring, sir? Yes. My laundry should have been picked up four days ago, and it's still here. Oh, I'll take it right away. I sir. told the other maid to be sure and send it out Wednesday so I can have it back by today. Oh, she was called up, you know. She must have forgot about your laundry. She was called up for what? A conscription, sir, to work in a munitions factory. I'm taking her place. Oh, I see. Yes, we older women are taking over a good many jobs. Hmm. Now, tell me, how do women here feel about conscription? Well, good, of course. They want to help. I wish I were younger so I could do something for the war. Well, you are helping in a way, aren't you? I mean, by replacing women who are replacing men. Yes, but that's so far off, if you know what I mean. It's, um, well, it's so, uh, it's... Uh, indirect? Yes, yes, indirect, that's it. Oh, I don't know. Are there any women slackers? Bound to be some, you know. They try all kinds of ways to get around the call, you know. They try to make themselves look very busy and important, doing nothing, if you ask me. Hmm. Uh... Is there much complacency? Uh, what's that mean, sir? Oh, easygoing. As though the war didn't matter much. Oh, certainly. Some are like that. In fact, too many, if you ask me. Well, you know what a woman said to my sister last week? She said, I'm having such trouble getting a maid because all my maids keep getting called up. So I'll be glad when this war's over, she said, because after the war, there'll be lots of unemployment and good maids will be plentiful and cheap. What did your sister tell that woman? Well, my sister said to her, You have another guest coming, ma'am. That's what she said right to her face. Mm. What else did she say? She said, This war ain't being fought to make maids plentiful and cheap. She said, This war ain't being fought to make the world safe for unemployment. Just the opposite. She talked right up. She did. Oh, my sister can be a terror, you know. Because she's younger than me. What did the woman say to that? Uh, she didn't say anything, I don't think. Yeah. 
Well, you tell your sister I think she's right. I will, sir. Dead right. Yes, sir, thank you. I'll, uh, I'll tell her. I'll take the laundry now. She takes the laundry. And you take your hat and coat and set out on your grand tour of investigation. Within 50 yards, you note a half a dozen items having to do with the case. Every fifth woman on the street is in uniform. Wafts, hats, wrens, Canadians, Americans, New Zealanders, nurses, ambulance drivers. You turn into Charing Cross Road and see two women in dirty slacks cleaning traffic standards. And further down, a girl lifting a crate off the back of a wagon. You have an impulse to run over and give her a hand. But you'd probably be insulted. You'd only make yourself ridiculous. You go into the underground, subway to you, and descend the long flight of stairs. And then you go down a very long and very steep escalator. You've never been as far down in the earth as this in your life. There's still another bank of escalators. Now, the station guard in gray slacks and a peaked cap announces the next train. What for train? Baker Street, Paddington, what for train? The train rolls in. It seems massive after the subway trains of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Very handsomely upholstered and comfortable. And it goes like a bat out of a tube station. <laughs> On the train, you fall to talking with a man about women. He says they're all over the place. Oh, yes. They're all over the place. You ought to go to a farm and see what the land army is doing. What's the land army? Volunteer farm workers. Women taking the place of men in the fields. What do they do? Oh, they do everything. Plow, plant, gather harvest. They live on the farms. Well, is this land army an organized affair or is it just... Oh, absolutely. Nothing random about it. It's important work and tough work. Some of the land army girls have been awarded decorations by the government. For big crops? No, for carrying on their work under bombings. Women are no small factor in this season's bumper crop, you know. Biggest crop in the history of the country this summer. You leave your friend and come up into the bright day. Around the corner, a group of girls are drilling. Right in the middle of a London street. Arms swinging, heads up. Deadly serious. Not a giggle in the gaggle. You walk down the street and head for Paddington Station where you'll take the train that will take you to the bus that will take you to your first factory. Women who work 10 hours a day making weapons for soldiers who may have to fight 24 hours a day don't have much time to talk to visitors. 
the girl who pickles coils of wire in hydrochloric acid looks up long enough to answer a question. No, I've got no complaint. I don't mind being conscripted and I don't mind being away from home. That's the least I can do for the war. I don't mind putting these things in and pulling them out all day long. But what irritates me is that we women aren't getting the same pay as the men for the same amount of work. Equal pay for equal work. That's what Lloyd George says and that's what I say. She lifts another heavy coil and goes on. Now, you take in the fire services. If a man is injured, he gets 35 bob a week. But if a girl gets hurt, she gets only 28. Does that mean women are worth less than men as human beings? She dunks the coil extra hard and you get a strong whiff of acid. An airplane factory. Women making planes from nose to tail. A great long shed like some of the American factories. Noisier than transatlantic static on a bad night. A riveter stops long enough to explain that things are a little better now. It's easier now. First, it was very hard on us shopping girls because we were expected to shop in the lunch hour and that meant either not having the proper lunch or not shopping properly. Well, what's been done to correct that? Well, the factory's given us priority cards. That means when we go into a store, we get attended before those who aren't working. I can see that makes sense. Well, then also there's the good neighbor system. Good neighbors? What's that? Well, that's when we get together and take turns shopping for each other. One might do the shopping for four or five. Collective security, huh? <laughs> yes, collective security. You speak to the manager of a tank factory. They employ women crane operators, cable assemblers, welders, millers, and even have them run the big hydraulic presses. You ask the boss how women compare with men on these jobs. Well, in my experience, they're often superior. Often as not. Wouldn't you say so, J.M.? Quite. I think also that married women seem especially eager to do the job and to keep at it. It's almost as though they were carrying their household pride into the factory. In a factory that makes insulated cables... You talk with a woman who handled hot copper ingots weighing 70 pounds off a conveyor. She's glad to be contributing to the war effort, but she has some criticism of methods of conscription. In my opinion, there's not enough careful grading and selection in the conscription of women. They're treated too much like, like automatons, and too often they're not given the jobs they're best able to do. There should be better testing and grading of conscripts so that the right woman is in the right job. In a marine boiler shop, you lunch with grimy welders, cutters, grinders, and drillers, two-thirds of them women. The canteen is bustling, and over the loudspeaker following the one o'clock news, there's a talk by a woman member of parliament, Miss Ellen Wilkinson. You recall her from the days when Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco attacked Spain. Miss Wilkinson was fighting fascism when a good many respectable people were still doing business with Hitler. But her talk today concerns the new compulsory fire-watching for British women. The workers listen attentively. There will be a satisfaction later on in looking back and saying to oneself that it wasn't only the Russian women who stood in the hot spots and did their stuff. After the last war, children asked, What did you do in the Great War, Daddy? Well, after this one, there will be millions of children who will ask, What did you do in the Great War, Mummy? 
or for that matter, Granny. It will be pleasant to be able to say, oh, nothing much. I just helped to beat the Luftwaffe. You take your ministry pass in hand and set out for a training camp of the ATS, Auxiliary Territorial Service. That's the woman's branch of the Army. You find it bristling with activity. Girls marching, drilling, riding bicycles, driving trucks, going about their chores with a snap and precision. There's a feeling of high morale and good discipline. A healthy tone in the way the girls salute their officers. You meet the chief commander and remark on the fine carriage of her troops. Yes, they're fine girls. The month they spend here makes quite a difference to them. It does, huh? Rather. Let me show you what I mean. She takes you to a nearby receiving station where 20 new recruits still wearing civvies stand in line to get khaki uniforms and supply kits. Hmm. Scragglier-looking bunch of girls you never saw. Many are pale. All have poor posture. Some are depressed. You walk away with a commander. And as you round the corner, a squad of girls passes. Eyes right. They're spruce, confident. Their complexions are ruddy. Each looks twice as rugged as any of the rookies you just saw. Well, they're the same girls. Four weeks difference. That's all. I suppose that for a good many of them, this is the first time in their lives that they've been given any kind of a break in the way of nourishment and physical training. Good, healthy, outdoor living. To say nothing of dental work and even hairdressing. What about such matters as makeup and hairdo? Makeup is all right, in moderation. We discourage it only if it becomes too conspicuous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Commander, I wonder if you could tell me something about the uh, thinking of these girls. Have they any interest in the issues of the war? In what comes out of the victory? I mean, are they at least concerned with their own futures? Well, you see... Her face clouds. No longer the cheery optimism. The answer is no. The majority is concerned with day-to-day duties, which they perform very well. They don't have much of an impression about how this war started, beyond the fact that Hitler had a lot to do with it. The peace after victory occupies very little of their minds. That's too bad. Of course, we give them lectures on current events, but there's quite a handicap to overcome. You mean some of these women don't know the meaning of names like, let's say, uh, Vichy or... Pearl Harbor or Suez. Oh, most of them don't know the names of half the countries in the war. Some of them couldn't point out Australia on a map. Oh, now, wait a minute, Commander. You're joking, aren't you? I'm afraid not, sir. Here, let me show you. Quite at random. Corporal, will you come over here? Ask her about the war. Yes, Commander? This gentleman wants to ask you some questions. Uh... What does the name Libya mean to you? Libya? I don't know. Uh, What's happening in the Caucasus right now? I don't know what Caucasus is. Did you ever hear of Malaya? No, sir. Cairo? Oh, yes, sir. Cairo. I've heard of Cairo. What do you know about it? Why, that's where my Harry is. I see. Thank you very much. Thank you, Corporal. That's all. Very disillusioning, isn't it? Yes. I'm afraid that England, for all its 
far-flung empire has been a very insular country, at least up to now. You know the classic example of our insularity, don't you? No, what's that? There was once a headline in a London paper reading, Dense Fog in the Channel, Continent Cut Off from England. The talk goes on through tea, served in the officer's mess. And then you say goodbye to the commander and set out for a distant anti-aircraft training ground where you're going to see the work of mixed ACK-ACK batteries. You travel by train, by bus, by taxi. You arrive. At the target practice. You show papers. You meet the captain. He's a courteous, serious young man. I gather you would like to see the girls at work. Yes, sir, if you don't mind. Very glad to show you. If there ever was a doubt about women as efficient workers, this would dispel it. A team of spotters, predictors, height finders, 18 in all, move with the precision of a Swiss watch as they turn with a machinery following a plane. They look like a keen lot, Captain. They are. They're very good. But what were these girls before the war? Oh, one was a theater usher, another was a stenographer. They all volunteered for the job, huh? Oh, yes. All work for the women in connection with the operation of lethal weapons must be volunteered for. Mm-hmm. Do they like... Hey, that shot hit the cable, towing the target, didn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was a good shot. They do that every once in a while. We'll have to send up another target now. During the lull in the firing, you talk about your experiences with the corporal of the ATS and repeat what her commander said about the girls. The captain knocks the ashes out of his pipe, then gazes off toward the horizon. Yes, I know. Not many of these girls understand or care, especially about the terms of the Atlantic Charter, if that's what you mean. It's not their fault, and it's not any lack of intelligence either. They've just never been told. They've lived in a pretty narrow world, you know. Lived in a world whose chief interests were getting boyfriends, getting married and having babies. They were never taught the connection between bombs on Barcelona and bombs on Coventry. They haven't been encouraged to understand that a dead Chinese soldier is a dead Tommy under another name. Nobody has bothered to explain to them that the continent isn't cut off from England, as your story goes, by a fog in the channel. And they're only beginning to learn for themselves that no land is cut off from any other land anywhere. That freedom is absolutely indivisible. Well, aren't you really saying that it's a matter of education? That the solution it's is... It's a deep, far-reaching thing, having to do with education and experience and a kind of slow revolution in the thinking of women. A sort of emancipation, if you will. I believe it's happening. Women are coming into their own. They're sharing this scrap as they've never shared anything before. The women of Britain are not enduring war. They're fighting it, as you can see for yourself. And I dare say they're learning. You really think they are? Oh, certainly. Before this war's over, they'll know we're more than Cairo. And they'll know that what goes on in Australia and China and all those other places has everything to do with their boyfriends and their husbands and their babies. Sure, they're learning. Learning... Learning first what they're capable of doing and how to do it. Learning that they're not just homemakers, but makers of the destinies of nations. That would be nice to believe. Three years ago, British girls were shocked at the idea of Russian girls becoming sea captains and flying officers. 
Today, these girls are shocked no longer. They're ready to grant that women are responsible and capable, and that women have what it takes to share and collaborate in the great work of the world. That's a goal for a girl, don't you think? Yes, I should think so. I say, will you excuse me, sir? The gun position officer is signaling. Certainly. He strides over to the guns. You stand alone, watching the girls do their stuff. And it strikes you that these girls, these women of Britain, so keen, so concentrated on their work, have got their eyes fixed on more than one target. Perhaps they're training their guns on an objective greater than they know. You've been listening to Women of Britain, the fourth of a limited series of six programs under the title of An American in England, written and directed by Norman Corwin and brought to you by Columbia Broadcasting System direct from England through the facilities of the British Broadcasting Corporation. Joseph Julian narrated and the original musical score was composed by Benjamin Britten and performed by the Orchestra of the Royal Air Force under the baton of Wing Commander R.P. O'Donnell. The program was produced by Edward R. Murrow. Your announcer was John Snag.